He is risen. Uh, a little better than last, last service, but mm, we could do better. So the tradition is you hear he has risen and you respond with he has risen indeed. Oh, that's better. Okay, ready? Let's do it for real. I'm going through there. He is risen. He is risen. There you go. See, doesn't that feel better? Yeah, it was good. Anyway, thank you again for joining us here today, Easter morning, 2023. And everybody goes, wow, 2023, how'd that happen? Yeah, crazy. Remember Y2K? Yeah. See, a lot of, a lot of you guys do. I know. It was a long time ago. I really, it really makes me so happy just to be here on Sundays, if you haven't noticed. Um, but I really mean it when I say that being an active part of this church community, this ecclesia, really will make your life better. And as an added bonus, it will make you better at life. And we hope that you'll come back next week, too, because we do this every week. And if you don't have a church home, we'd ask that you would consider making Hammock Street Church a part of your life. You know, most of you guys know that I didn't grow up in the church. In fact, I didn't know one thing, no, no things I knew about Jesus until I was 30 years old. But once God showed me who he is, and once I came to understand what it means to live my life with and to live my life for Jesus, I knew that I would be with him forever, and I want that for you too. I desperately want that for you too. I have to tell you, it is truly the best decision I've ever made. Won't you join me for a word of prayer, and then we will talk a bit. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together this morning. Thank you for giving us this opportunity to come together as your people to celebrate the resurrection. Thank you, God, for loving us, even though we are pretty much unlovable most of the time, even though we don't deserve it, even though we stray away from you and we seek after things that are against your will. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for making a way for us to come back, for us to join together with you, to be with you for eternity when we turn from our sins, when we understand what Jesus has done for us on the cross through his death and resurrection. We understand what it means to be a follower of his in this world. Thank you, God, for drawing us in, and being there for us at all times. We love you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, if a person were looking into, researching, considering becoming a follower of Jesus, or if a person were looking to gain a deeper understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, the event that we're celebrating today, the resurrection, is the best place to start. The resurrection is the central event. The resurrection is the very foundation of a faith in Jesus. We, we talk about this a bit. Christmas gets a lot more publicity. It gets like a whole month, and there's presents involved, and everybody decorates their parking lots. I know in the north, Christmas looks different, but here it looks like decorated malls and parking lots. But, you know, Christmas gets a lot of the press, but this is, this is the foundation of our faith in Jesus. And even the most basic understanding of the history of the Christian faith reveals that tens of thousands of people believed in the resurrection and began to follow Jesus before there was anything such as an organized church. And even before there was a resource known as the Bible. In fact, the first people who were not just Jesus admirers, but were actually true Jesus followers, began following him for real in earnest the same morning that he rose from the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead, it was game on for the Jesus movement. 
Immediately after the resurrection in Jerusalem, the people in Jerusalem and Judea did the exact same thing that you would have done if you'd seen someone die, if you knew where they were buried, and then you had locks with them on the beach. Maybe bagels too. Maybe that's where that came from. They did. Jesus, go look it up. I'm not kidding you. Had fish with Jesus on the beach a few days later. You know what they did when they found out and they saw their risen Lord? They went on social media and told others. They did. 2,000 years ago, their version of social media was talking to everybody about stuff and then writing about things. That's exactly what they did. After the resurrection, a follower of Jesus by the name of Matthew, you might have heard of him. Remember the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Yeah, he's one of them, one of Jesus' disciples. He was an eyewitness to the crucifixion, and he wrote an account of Jesus' life. So did a guy named Mark. Mark was a Greek Jew who knew the disciples. He wasn't a disciple himself. He knew the disciples. And he talked to a lot of eyewitnesses, and he wrote a chronological account of the life of Jesus based on the testimony of those eyewitnesses. If you were here in February and March, you know that a guy named Luke did the same thing. Luke began his writing, which we refer to as the Gospel of Luke, by saying this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Then there was this guy named John. Another one of Jesus' disciples, Jesus' closest friend, he was also an eyewitness to everything that happened. And when John was an old man, he realizes that he too needed to write all this stuff down. Then there was a disciple named Peter who wrote letters about Jesus to the community, the Jesus-following community, the church. We know from their writings that all these men believed that Jesus rose from the dead. Then there was a guy named James. What makes James unique? James was Jesus' little brother. What would your big brother have to do to get you to believe that he was the Messiah? James wasn't a follower of Jesus while he was alive. I mean, think about it. It's a hard sell. Oh, by the way, I'm the Messiah, and I ate your pudding, or whatever, right? No way. But you know something? After the resurrection... James was a believer, and he became one of the leaders of the Jesus movement. And he wrote a letter in which he shared that Jesus had become his Lord and his Savior. And finally, there's this guy named Paul. You might know of him as the Apostle Paul. Paul had more to do with the development and the spread of Christianity than any other person in the ancient world. The Apostle Paul traveled around the Mediterranean Rim and planted a bunch of communities, a bunch of churches, because he too believed that Jesus physically, literally rose from the dead. We believe because these men who knew Jesus were eyewitnesses of, or knew eyewitnesses of, Jesus' death and resurrection, and they all wrote about it. But there's another guy that you should check out and you should listen to as you're trying to decide whether Jesus is worth considering. And his name was Nero. Now, I'm going to guess, unless you're some sort of Roman history buff, that you've heard about Nero, but you don't know a heck of a lot about Nero. Is that probably accurate? Do you, do you know any law that Nero passed? Any wars that Nero might have won? Do you know who Nero's famous mother was? Anybody? Julia Agrippina. I had to look it up too. 
So, yeah. Do you know who followed Nero as emperor of Rome? Claudius did. Do you know, or he preceded him. You know who followed him? Galba. All right. You don't know those things. But you might know these two things about Nero. First, do you know this? Nero burned down the city of Rome. Heard of that probably? Seen the paintings maybe? And second, did you know that Nero blamed the Christians for that? And because of that, in 64 AD, a persecution against Christians in Rome began. Okay, so, why should we listen to Nero of all people? Well, consider this and watch the timing. Nero's persecution of the Christians started about 30 years after the resurrection, right? I said 64 AD, uh, crucifixion, resurrection is around 33, 34 AD. Why is that relevant? Well, here's why. This is so cool. Scholars have studied how long it takes for a myth or a legend or a fable to develop. A myth, a legend, and fable essentially is something that may or may not have actually happened in the real world, but over time it gets exaggerated and repeated so much that people start to believe it even if it's not completely true. So, most scholars have determined that it takes a bare minimum of about 40 years and typically takes up to 80 years for something untrue to become a legend that people end up believing. And there's a reason, a really practical reason, why it takes so long. And that's because all the people who were eyewitnesses of the original event have to be dead before the false version can be effectively spread without it being immediately debunked, right? You have to get, all the eyewitnesses have to be gone. And history tells us that when Nero was looking for a group of people to blame the burning of Rome on, there were thousands of Christians already in the city of Rome. There were thousands of Christians there who already believed that Jesus rose from the dead. And the reason they believed that Jesus rose from the dead is because either they themselves were there when it happened, or their parents were there, or their grandparents were there, or their relatives were there. And that means that today, we don't believe it because someone made the whole thing up and it just sounded cool. We believe it because the people who were there wrote about it. We believe it because... Within 30 years, there were thousands of those people, thousands of those believers in Rome. Rome is 1,500 miles away from where it happened. And they didn't have cars and planes to get there quickly. There was a, quite a journey to get from Jerusalem to Rome. But 15, <clears throat> 1,500 miles away, thousands of people believed that Jesus rose from the dead 30 years later. And if there were thousands of people in Rome 30 years after the resurrection, that meant there were still thousands of people there 10 years earlier, 20 years after the resurrection. And that likely means that there were probably thousands, at least hundreds and hundreds of people that were there 10 years after the resurrection. So when you look at the timeline, it is virtually impossible that it was made up. It is virtually impossible to conclude that there had been enough time for a myth about a resurrection that simply didn't happen to have grown so large, especially so far away from Jerusalem. So the bottom line is this. Everything we read in the New Testament about Jesus is accurate and is true. Jesus died on a cross, was placed into a tomb, and was resurrected from the dead. And that's why this morning all over the world, legitimately and literally all over the world. Followers of Jesus are gathered to celebrate his resurrection as well as the implications of his resurrection. 
And when we fully understand the resurrection and its implications, it will create a context for our lives that impacts every element and facet of our lives. Every one of us has to have a context in which we live. We all have a worldview. We all see things happen and then we try to understand what we're seeing. And if your worldview is different, what you're seeing is different. You don't know what you don't know. You don't see what you can't see, all that sort of stuff. But every aspect and every facet of our lives is controlled by our understanding of Jesus. Our understanding of Jesus impacts how we spend our time and with whom we spend our time and how we entertain ourselves and how we spend our money and how we mourn, and how we love. And the events of that first Easter morning, as recorded in the Bible, capture the energy and the implications of what it means to be a person who lives their life believing that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. So from the accounts of the people who were there, as recorded for us in the Bible, and supported by contemporaneous history, that means historians, people writing at the same time, not in the Bible, I'm going to tell you, what happened. So first I want to give you a little bit of context. We've discussed this before, so if you're part of this community, you've heard this before. The ancient Jews believed that God would one day send a deliverer, send a Messiah, send a Christ, that's what that means, to Israel to restore the nation of Israel to the glory that it had under their King David and their King Solomon. So by Jesus' day, that had been about a thousand years. They'd been waiting about a thousand years for that Messiah to show up. But it actually went back even further than that. They believed that 2,000 years before, God had made a promise to a man named Abraham. And the promise that God made to this man named Abraham was this. It's in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. I will make you, Abraham, into a great nation, and I will bless you. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you, through your family. Now, because it's difficult to unknow things that we already know, and this is a phenomenon you have to think about when, and we do this a lot nowadays, we, we take the knowledge that we have now, and we look back over history, and we tell ourselves how we would have behaved back then without that knowledge. Oh, if I had seen the Holocaust happen, I'd have stood up and I'd have fought. Or if, oh, and I had seen the Crusades, I'd have stood up and said, that's not right. We do that because it's impossible to understand. They didn't know stuff that we know now. It's very difficult to unknow things that we already know. And because of that, it's a challenge for us to understand what an outrageous notion this promise was. Because you see, in the ancient world, nations never Never, ever blessed other nations. You simply did not bless another nation if you were your own nation. Nations conquered other nations. Nations enslaved other nations. Nations attacked other nations. Nations plundered and robbed other nations. But no nation ever blessed another nation. But God said to Abraham, your family is going to become a nation. And through that nation, every other nation on the earth is going to be blessed. So, accordingly, the Jewish people believed that one day there would be a Jewish Messiah. And God was going to use Israel to positively impact the entire world. Now, with that background in mind, let's go back to the first century A.D. By the time of the first century A.D., the nation of Israel was an enslaved people, an enslaved nation. They were under the heel of the world's reigning superpower at the time. That was the Roman Empire. By all appearances, Israel at that time was in absolutely no position to bless 
anybody because they, they couldn't even bless themselves. They were an enslaved people. To them, it seemed like a promise that God would never, ever fulfill. And then, onto the scene burst this very unusual guy. He came out of nowhere and set himself up in the Jordan River and started preaching. His name was John. We know him as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And John, well, the news of John went viral. It did. People went out to him to John from Jerusalem and from all Judea, that's the surrounding region, and the whole region of the Jordan. Like everybody had heard about this guy, John, baptizing people in Jordan, and they went out there to see him. He went viral. And this made the Jewish leaders very, very nervous. They wondered, huh, could this guy be the Messiah? So they went to this kind of oddball guy, John, and they said, well, are you him? Are you the Messiah? And John told them, no, I'm not. But here's what he said. This is in Matthew chapter 3. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then, while John the Baptist was preaching, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And look what he said. He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I want you to see and notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, look, The politician sent by God has come to take... He didn't say that. He didn't say, look, the warrior sent by God has come to take away the sin of the world. The the soldier sent by God has come to take away the sin of the world. He didn't say that. He said the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's at that moment that Jesus steps into the pages of history. And the world hasn't been the same since. So Jesus began to teach, and he began to preach, and he did so, the scripture tells us, with authority, which meant they listened to him, and they went, that guy sounds like he knows what he's talking about, as opposed to, whew, what a kook. Like, they didn't do that. He preached with authority. And while the religious leaders had thought John the Baptist was going to be a problem, they, they soon saw that Jesus was a bigger problem for them. Jesus' crowds were much larger. His teachings were much more impactful, reached much, much more many more people. Jesus made the Romans very nervous too. And he made the religious leaders very jealous. And when they tried to discredit him with the crowds, Jesus just became even more popular. And so Jesus routinely called the religious leaders out. He said to them, whoa. By the way, when God says whoa to you, hmm, make sure your affairs are in order. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of bones and of of the dead and everything unclean. And take a minute and just imagine what that looks like. It smells like it's like a zombie movie, but with smell, bones and all that. How will you escape being condemned to hell? And the last straw was when Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And the crowd, crowd began to grow exponentially. And the leaders of the temple realized this. They said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and they'll take away both our temple and our nation. Before long, Jesus would be betrayed by a friend and condemned by the temple and ultimately crucified by the empire. Well, after the crucifixion, Jesus Jesus' body was recovered and buried by two wealthy men. Interestingly, in those days, Romans typically did not permit a crucifixion victim to have a proper burial. Typically, the crucifixion victim's body would be taken down off the cross, 
tossed into a wagon, transported to the valley of Gehenna, and burned, or at least left to rot. But sometimes people would come along, they'd bribe the governor to give him the body, which just goes to show you corruption in politics has been around a very, very long time. Well, those two wealthy men who were actually secret followers of Jesus, they went to Pontius Pilate, they likely bribed him, and they took Jesus' body. Now the sun was setting, and the Jewish people have to have all their work done before the sun goes down because the Sabbath was coming. So they prepared Jesus' body in sort of a hurried way for burial, and they put him in the tomb, and they had the tomb sealed, and they left. And if on that day I were trying to convince you to consider Jesus, I would say, now watch what happens next. But when Jesus died, everybody unfollowed him. You thought we invented unfollowing? We did not. Everybody unfollowed Jesus. Why did everybody unfollow Jesus? Because during his three years in his ministry, he made so many claims about himself that when he died, it seemed to undermine all of them. Jesus claimed, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But the people, they knew that, but they, but they thought, but you died. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And they looked and said, yeah, but you died. And he said, I and the Father are one. And they thought, how is that possible? How could you be crucified if you and the Father were one? Even though throughout his ministry, he'd healed the sick, he'd raised the dead, he'd fed the multitudes. When he died, everybody's faith in him disappeared. It's not a stretch to say there were no Christians. There were no Jesus followers after the crucifixion. There was no movement to keep moving. The movement seemingly died with him that day. On Easter morning, there was no one standing outside the tomb, counting down from 10, waiting for the resurrection. 10, 9, here we go. 8, 7, cue the sun. 6, no, it didn't happen. Now, here's another thing to consider. Nowhere in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, nowhere in the Gospels, nowhere in James or Peter or Paul's letters, did anyone decide, I'm going to make myself the hero of this fake story. No one decided that. Think about it. If they were making this story up, Surely at least one of them would have tried to make themselves the hero of the story, wouldn't they? No one else believed, but yeah, I, I knew he was coming back. I knew it. I didn't write that down. No one else was waiting for Jesus to come out of the tomb. I was standing right there going, come on, we know you're coming out. Nobody did that. Instead, all of the writers all admitted that no one believed Jesus was coming back. No one believed they would see him alive again. No one was expecting a resurrection. And it's here that our story truly begins. Here we go from John's gospel. Even though John was Jesus' closest friend and an eyewitness to the crucifixion, like everybody else, John lost his faith when Jesus was crucified. So we go to John 20, verse 1. So early on the first day of the week, that's Sunday in the Jewish calendar, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Now remember, Mary Magdalene was a woman whom Jesus had healed, and she became one of Jesus' closest followers. And she was an eyewitness to many of the things that Jesus did and many of the things that Jesus said. And she believed that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. So she woke up early that Sunday morning, 
And even though her heart was broken, and even though nothing made sense to her, she was still so grateful for what Jesus had done for her that she decided to go to the tomb and see if somehow she could have somebody move the stone so she could actually do a good job embalming the body because it was two men that hurried. So she's like, you guys married guys, you know how this works? Yeah. Come on, she's going to get it. She's going to do it better. You know she's going to do it better. So she wanted to re-embalm Jesus' body for burial. So what I'm telling you is this. She expected to find Jesus' body in the tomb when she went there. But when she got to the tomb, John 20, verse 1, she saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, when Mary saw the stone had been removed, what did she assume? Did she assume that Jesus was alive? Did she assume that Jesus had risen from the dead? No. How do we know? Verse 2. She came running to Simon and Peter and the, to Simon Peter and the other disciple. That's John, the one who Jesus loved. Isn't it fun? John always refers to himself as the one Jesus loved. Like, anybody remember the Smothers brothers? Anybody old enough for that? Mom likes him better, or me better, whatever. And she said, here's what she said. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Mary assumed that someone had broken into the tomb and stolen Jesus' body. Mary didn't expect a resurrection. She didn't expect no body. Nobody expected no body. When Mary burst through the door, look what she said. It wasn't, he is risen, he's alive. It was, they've taken our Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they put him. That wasn't unreasonable. People hated Jesus enough to falsely accuse him and have him crucified, didn't they? And maybe she was thinking Jesus' enemies hired somebody to break into the tomb and and desecrate the body or desecrate the tomb so nobody would ever go back to Jesus' burial place and, and set it up as a martyr shrine or something. Well, Peter and John didn't know what to do. So Peter and John started for the tomb. Both were running. Again, remember John wrote this? Both were running, but John outran Peter. It's kind of a weird Bible flex, isn't it? Like, I'm so much faster than Peter. Everybody knows that, you know. But anyway, John reached the tomb first. And when they looked into the tomb, of course they didn't see anybody. So eventually they went back to where they were staying. Now at that time, they didn't think that Jesus had risen from the dead either. By that time now, Mary had returned to the tomb. She'd gone back to the tomb and she stood there crying. She couldn't wrap her head around this, but she wouldn't give up on it. Verse 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 11. So as she wept, she bent over. So the tomb's got a low entrance. So she's looking in the tomb, bent over, looking in the tomb. And what did she see? Here's what she saw. She saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head, the other at the foot. And the angels asked her a question. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? And here's how Mary answered. They have taken my Lord away. And I don't know where they have put him. Now, just put yourself in her shoes for a minute, in her sandals for a minute. You can feel like this anguish, and she's like, what the heck happened? Where's my Lord? I want to believe, but there's nobody here. She was so sure that grave robbers had come, and she's trying to figure out in her brain what is happening here, and then she must have heard a noise. Verse 14, so she turned around, and she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was him. She didn't recognize him. Now, we don't know why she didn't recognize him, But she didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it. And then Jesus asked her the same thing the angels had asked her. Here's what Jesus asked. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Now, 
you have to imagine Jesus is kind of digging this moment a little bit. Because he knows who he is. And he knows when she figures it out, she's going to be just shocked and amazed and all that. So he's just playing this out a little bit longer. It's kind of cool. And then, and then John tells us this, and this is actually pretty funny. The Bible is pretty funny when you look for it. Here's what happens. <laughs> Thinking Jesus was the gardener. <laughs> Mary thought Jesus was the gardener. Has there ever been a person so wrong in human history as this? Do you think Mary ever lived that one down? Do you think whenever they got together for the holidays, the years that follow, hey, Mary, <laughs> remember when you thought the Lord was a gardener? Remember that, you know? This would become perhaps the most important moment in the midst of the most important event in the whole New Testament. And Mary not only missed what was happening, but she missed it by mistaking the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords for the gardener. Isn't that a great story? And seriously, why do you think Mary thought Jesus was the gardener? Because nobody expected a resurrection. They were literally and legitimately looking into an empty tomb. And no one, no one assumed that Jesus was alive. Everyone expected Jesus to do exactly what dead people are supposed to do. Stay dead, right? And then she said, sir, (laughs) sir. She's like, she can't even be bothered. Quit talking to me. Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you put him and I'll go get him. Just picture it. She's stooping down. She's looking in, trying to figure out what she's seeing. She's looking back over her shoulder. There's some guy who keeps bugging her. He keeps talking to her. She's trying to figure out what happened to her Lord. She's looking in this tomb. It's like, enough, gardener, quiet, you know? Until he says, Mary. When she heard his voice and heard him say her name, everything changed. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, that means teacher. And she ran toward Jesus And Jesus said, don't hold me yet. I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, we don't know why he said that, really. We can't really figure that out from the Scripture. But next, he said this. Go instead to my brothers, to the people who believe in me, to my disciples, and tell them I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. In other words, Jesus said, Mary, now you can tell the fellows what actually happened. So Mary Magdalene And verse 18 goes back to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. This is a very significant moment, and here's why. This is really interesting. In the ancient world, women had no credibility. Women were not permitted to even testify in court. You never had to believe a woman. Just telling you what the Bible says, okay, guys? The ancient world. So if you were going to make this story up that you wanted people to believe in the future you would not have had a woman as a witness. Not to anything. Because nobody would take seriously anything she said. And yet, all the Gospels tell us that the woman, that Mary, saw Jesus first and then told the men. Why? Do you know why the Gospels say it that way? Because that's the way it happened. Mary said, I have seen the Lord. And from that moment, everything was new. From that moment, they knew God came through. From that moment, they knew Jesus is exactly who he said he was. From that moment, they knew we can believe everything. We can keep on trusting in everything. Death has been arrested, and our lives are beginning again. Everything changed for them because Jesus was alive. And the same thing holds true for us. Jesus is alive. And that gives us the context for every decision and every relationship 
And everything we do with our time, with the way that we plan, with the way that we dream, with the way that we treat other people, with every single thing in our lives, Jesus is alive. Because of the resurrection, you can pray knowing God hears your prayers because Jesus, the Jesus that came back to life is the same Jesus who tells you and tells me when you pray to God as your father, you can pray knowing that God knows exactly what you need even before you ask. But God wants you to ask him anyway because that's what good fathers do. And you can pray knowing that God hears your prayers because Jesus said when you pray in private, God hears your prayers and will reward you openly. And we can know all of this to be true because Jesus rose from the dead and thereby Jesus punctuated, thereby Jesus substantiated everything he taught and everything he said. Because of the resurrection, you can live knowing that there is life beyond this life because it was Jesus that taught us about heaven. It was Jesus that said to his disciples, I'm going ahead. I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back for you so that you can be with me someday. None of that made sense and none of that was believable until Jesus rose from the dead. And now we can believe. This means that every time you attend a funeral of a Christian, every time you bury someone you love, you can have hope because Jesus rose from the dead. And do you know what else it means? It means that you can make sacrifices in your life knowing that your faithfulness matters because Jesus throughout his ministry taught that what you do in this life matters in eternity. And what you do in this life and your faithfulness to God in this life is something that God keeps track of and something that God will reward you for. And here's the best news of all. Because of the resurrection, if you've never put your faith in Jesus as your Savior, you should consider it. Because the issue isn't, oh, do you know what the church has done? And the issue isn't, oh, I've met you Christians. Mm -mm. Because no matter what else you used to think, no matter what else you've heard before, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, which makes the only issue that matters, who is Jesus? On Easter, that question was answered. He is exactly who he claimed to be, Savior and Lord and worth your consideration. Amen?